0: I'm Tracy Burns. I'm a financial advisor with UBS. This podcast is called Five Things. You're gonna learn five things, and then we're gonna let you move on with your day because we are all super busy and you have stuff to do, and I get it. I am on a mission to help women empower them financially, especially through divorce transition. I have a super soft spot for female founders and entrepreneurs, small businesses. And of course, closing the wage gap, I have three young adult kids. They're pretty fabulous. Two of them are young women. So this podcast is my little small piece of helping us get to full equality. So before we dive into today's fabulous guest, listen to our previous podcast, please. There's some great stuff out there. We recently did dear friend of mine, Alyssa Rapp. She talked about what she learned opening her first SPAC, Special Purpose Acquisition Company how to create the perfect board, how to be a board member. There's all these great things out there. So go check them out. So today I'm super excited about this because as we come up to the end of the year, and truth is, just because of where we are in society today, philanthropy is front and center for so many people. And so figuring it out and doing it right is uh, what we're all about here today, which is why I'm thrilled that Liza Antema is with us today, president and founder of the Dance Data Project. Liza, I'm going to let you talk about the Dance Data Project, but I just need everyone to know a little bit of background. And, I'm, and your bio is a mile long and it would take our whole podcast, but it feels like to me, you have been a leader to for social justice from a very young age, graduate of the University of Michigan Law School. You won the Jane L. Mixer Memorial Award for Outstanding Contribution to Social Justice. So before we dive into the Dance Data Project, tell us, you know, is this, a, it's not Not every kid has this, this need to give back. What made you different? Hey Tracy, thank you so much for uh, doing this interview. Um, so
1: I come by it, honestly, um, my Mother and my grandmother, both said to my grandmothers, um, and a lot of my family up uh, pretty much from, um, from the beginning have been making good trouble from all the way from the Tea Party to the women's suffragist movement down to me volunteering literally as a candy striper. That's how old I am at uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston and uh, starting a ruckus because I asked a, um, a doctor to help me move something, which apparently violated etiquette. And I was like, what? I'm, you know, at the time I'm like 89 pounds or whatever, you know, five foot one and I'm just trying to help. Um, so I asked this this young male doctor and apparently he complained up and down. I ended up on a hospital-wide committee on um, volunteer um, staff and visitor relations. So I've been doing this since I was 15 and, um, you know, John Lewis called it good trouble and it continued <laughs> college where I was marching on take back the night and I started doing research into um, the number of sexual assaults at the college which they were attempting to hide um, because they refused to um, categorize rape um, so I've been I've been looking at numbers and um, poking the bear for a very long time and then as you said in law school uh, I, uh, ran a conference on pornography in the First Amendment, and I'm proud to say that we're, people were standing and screaming at each other in the aisles, uh, wow. kind of like British Parliament. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, high-minded, but 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 very vociferous, and we ended up, um, as a result of that, um, one of the premier feminist scholars who couldn't get a tenure position ended up at University of Michigan and has been um, writing ever since. So Very, very proud of that, Um, you know, had three children and sort of was out of the mix for a while, always volunteering, always interested in various forms of social justice, but really have been focused my entire life on um,
0: women and girls and um, gender rights. I love it. And then the dance, and so, and let's flash forward to the Dance Data Project, because I don't think, and it wasn't until I met you, I have to be honest, that I truly did not realize the obscene inequities in the dance world. My daughter danced and you always presume there's there's a lot of women around, there's a lot of girls around things should be in the girl's favor, right? And it's just not like that, is it? That's 100% right, Tracy. Um, So first of all, why does it matter? Um, There is
1: a a huge sorority of of women who have danced, whether it's for six months or a year or almost one professional. And then it's usually the dance moms, but there are dance dads. So around the globe, hundreds of thousands of little girls go off to uh, some form or another of dance Every week, um, you know, ballet, et cetera. And so it's a big population. It is a global multi billion dollar industry. And at the top sits ballet, and at the top of the top sit the biggest companies. So let's run the numbers, which nobody had done before. Uh, so in 2019, uh, the largest 50 ballet companies, and we also include Alvin Alien, some other companies in that. Uh, their their combined ex, uh, their combined budgets by expenditure was almost exactly two thirds of a billion dollars. Oh, so that's God. not that's not peanuts. Mm-hmm. In of that, the top ten, the largest ten companies represented sixty two percent of that budget. So as I always say, we what we what we have here is an oligopoly. Of those largest 10 companies, only one has a female artistic director. And on any given evening, if you go to see a ballet performance or uh, Alvin Ailey, et cetera, two thirds of the time, you may not see a single work by a woman. And that just seems like the norm to a lot of people, because as you said, they're used to uh, their ballet teacher or the local studio being run by a woman. But as in so many other uh, occupations, Women are stuck in the $20 an hour gig position. And we've actually shown that even in dance schools, um, the, the higher the position, the bigger the salary, the more likely it is to be held by a man. So I'm sitting in the auditorium theater, which is this vast, vast space. I mean, it was built for the elephants to come across. And The thing is massive, one of the great cultural landmarks in the United States. And you can't unsee this stuff after you've seen it. Uh, The performance is about to start, and I don't know what what made me do it, but I looked down at the program and I leafed through it. It's like 20 or 30 pages long. Then I looked up, I looked around me, and most of the major donors, right, and we now know it's about 70% of the donor base are female, or if it's a couple giving, it's because for the most part, the woman's interested in dance. And then I looked around at the audience, and we know now that the audience is about 70% female. So it matches the donor base, right? Sometimes it's even more so. And then I looked to the program for the season and there wasn't one single female choreographer. Beyond that, most of the companies that were coming, the artistic directors were male, even the assistant or associate artistic directors male. So we have one reality that's funding this from all economic levels, right? Whether it's paying full freight as students, or whether it's the donor base. And then on the stage, we see a very, very narrow male, white, usually European um, image. Well, no wonder people are leaving the performing arts and dance in particular in droves. And as I always say, I mean, the ballet industry, if left to itself, is gonna dance itself right off a cliff into
0: complete irrelevance. But how does that happen when the lead, it, it feels to me like the lead dancer is a woman on stage. Right. But think
1: about it. The woman is is this beautiful, objectified figure that doesn't get to talk. And there is a very very strong history of, I dare I say a misogyny in ballet, whether it's the Les Petits Rats, the little dancers in Degas that, you know, very often were were some man's mistress and would be paraded um, in the sal before the performances, starting, by the way, at age 13, 14, thinking here of R. Kelly. Um, But I mean, it's it's You'll see it in the performing arts generally, which is why, why even though Dance Data Project is specifically focused on dance, a lot of our advocacy, frankly, a lot of the research could be applied to the performing arts generally. Um, it's just that dance is the most female of art forms. Dancers are the least well-paid, the least
0: educated, the youngest, and get this, most likely to live at or near the poverty line. Oh, God. Which is which is a whole nother conversation that we have to have one day because we we can't continue to let this happen. And we can't for sure let the arts disappear. Right. Or as you said, dance right off the stage. But, but I guess what we are here today to talk about is what, you know, you, something needs you go forward and start this organization. And as we move into your five Points and the five essential things that you want to talk about, about philanthropy, whether you're starting your own or whether you're, you're giving. The first thing you say is that no one will ever give you permission to do it or make it okay, right? I'm sure you had backlash when you said, I've got to start an organization to help these, this, um, the injustices and in dance. And I'm sure people said, you're bananas.
1: Um, some people said I'm bananas. Mostly it was much more subtle, and i'm 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 sad to say very often it comes from other women. As I've often said, there are a lot of Ghislaine maxwell's in the um in the ballet world. Uh, but so your your um um our mutual friend, Alyssa Rapp talks about the fact that as an entrepreneur, you've got to get used to people saying no. Well, you know, she's a young, dynamic woman with a a very serious pedigree. Here I am, an upper middle class housewife outside of Chicago, right? And my training, um, which is in management labor relations, does give me a lot of insights into this. But I think that there's a huge amount of ageism in the United States and what is considered an appropriate role for a woman. And if what you've been in the past is perceived as, you know, the nice lady wearing a double set of Spanx, writing a check or <laughs> raising money, switching, switching roles, right? Code switching is really difficult for a lot of people. And so I would say there's a lot of ageism. Um, there's also a lot of overturning of expectations. Um, but I really, this goes sort of to our second point, but I tried as hard as I could not to do this. Understanding full well, Tracy, all the barriers that were going to come up, all the objections as to why I should be the person to do it. So I spent a good, I would say two and a half, three years researching this, trying to find another organization that was doing it, you know, literally sitting in church, praying, God, some show me somebody else who can do this so that I can step aside. End of the day, there wasn't anybody else, but it, it's, it's not easy for a number of reasons. First of all, gender, um, philanthropy in general, massively underfunds women. This, I have not told you the statistic before, but I think it's going to startle you. In the United States, only 1.6% of funding goes to organizations that support women and girls' causes. So this is from the Women's Philanthropy Institute at the Lilly School University of Indiana. So in 2016, um, $396.5 billion given charitably in the United States. For example, $123.8 billion given to religious organizations. Women and girls, charities about women and girls, whether it's sex trafficking or you know, things around self-esteem or anything you can think of, $6.3 billion. Jeez. So even, even in how we fund, we're showing um, as a society how little we care for gender rights and how little we care for women and girls. And a lot of them, uh, a lot of the people I know, by the way, who are involved in trying to support women and girls um, it's done globally, you know, sort of India, Afghanistan, yeah. et cetera. Right. So it's not, it's
0: not home. It's not here at home. It's not home. So I knew, I knew I had a huge uphill climb. So, okay. So this is why I, this is so important. So look, if you have, if there's something in your backyard that is, that is getting you out of bed and firing you up. No one's going to give you permission or make it okay. So go, just go do it. You can't wait for approval. Go There's- do it. Go ahead and go do it. But
1: also, I would, I would. My 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 second point is, if somebody else is doing it, figure out a way to work with them because so much of philanthropy, particularly male philanthropy, is branded. Look at my new stadium, you know, and then it gets down to look at look at my locker room, um, you know, whatever. Um, right. Phil Knight and Nike. Um, There's a ton of ego in philanthropy, which means there's a lot of duplication and there's a lot of waste. Um, 2015, Crane's Chicago Business estimated that a third of philanthropic organizations should go away. Why is that important? Because the duplication of staff and services means that a lot of money isn't getting to the people you're trying to help. So I really looked hard to see if somebody else might be doing this. So yes, go ahead and do it but also do your due diligence. Make sure there isn't somebody else out there. Um, A lot of people approach philanthropy the way they do their first serious uh, infatuation in high school or middle school. (laughs) They just go all in and they lose their
0: minds. (laughs) That's a great analogy. Okay. So your second point is get used to people saying, no, we've heard that time and time again. So this brings us to what you're just saying now, your third point about research. Research things. Don't and like you're saying, if they're out there, go partner with them. Don't, you know, this notion that you have to be on your own and this hero by yourself is, it's, it's just a thing of the past. We all should be coming together to help each other.
1: Yeah. And again, I think that's very much a male model, right? This yeah. sort of, you know, the Campbell sort of like hero's journey. Women give, we know, we know from the research, you know, the Lily School again, um, but, you know, just, just take a look around you. Women do better collaborating. And I, I wouldn't, you know, whether it's my friend, Alyssa, or her mom, Faye Hartog-Levin, whether it's, you know, friends from other philanthropic endeavors, whether it's my high school friends, um, it, that has been my support system. And women, women do better collaborating, we feel better about the work we're doing. Um, but interestingly, and this is counterintuitive, um, it's also been shown that women do do a lot more research. They believe in philanthropy more. They believe that um that the work actually will create outcomes. So when women do it,
0: um they do it better, and they do it together. Oh, my God, hecky, yeah. I mean, how much time do we spend trying to figure out which peanut butter to serve our kids? Like we, <laughs> we, I mean we we uh, we're overkill sometimes too, right? but but I, I loved what you just said about um how it's all funded by men because I feel like they're still writing the checks. What's, what's happening, this transfer of wealth of wealth over the next 10 years from men to women, it's in the trillions of dollars. Women are going to start to have total control of the bulk of the wealth in this country. And so you say they need to take ownership of it. And, and because if we don't get out there and we don't start asking questions and putting our money where our mouth is, it will disappear. Okay, well, so so that's great. Um you and I have talked about this before. Um, my
1: phrase my my phrase is that I call philanthropy the gateway drug for women to financial independence, um, because oh. what they won't do for themselves, they will do for others. So very often, I mean, it was certainly true for me. Um, I started asking questions about my finance, and boy, the layers of unspoken assumptions of male financial advisors, You and I have talked about this. Well, of course, you're going to leave all your money to your children. Really? Really? really. Is that actually what I'm going to do? Um, And what, as I, again, what women won't do for themselves, they will do for others. And you get a woman really excited about philanthropic giving. All of a sudden, she starts asking, why is my portfolio organized this way? Why, you know, why am I heavily in carbon heavy stocks? Why am I in oils? Um, You know, my friend, so-and-so said, and you find women Getting together and looking at their portfolios, starting to ask these questions uh, about where their money is going. And yes, men do give a lot of the big gifts, but that is that is starting to change. So if you um my hidden agenda, which is clearly now not hidden, is to use <laughs> philanthropy as a way for women to move society and to get a get a hold of, understand that it is their right to
0: move their money around as they so choose. I love this. I love this. Now, just before we started, you had mentioned strategic versus trust-based philanthropy. So like, Ah. give us like a two minute on that because people should be super aware of what's happening out there with this.
1: Absolutely. Okay. So first of all, there are so many more resources than there used to be out there. It can be really confusing. It can be terrifying. Don't be scared. Just tackle one small bit of it, right? It's like eating the elephant. Um, but it's there's there is layer upon layer now because people are realizing that philanthropy is a driver, particularly for women, as you said, who are inheriting this money. So um, it, I I would, I would link it to the rise of tech money. If you imagine the um, the United States as a, a plate balanced. Um, the the plate used to be heavily weighted over towards the east coast and New York and and old money that that has now shifted radically um, at least in terms of what philanthropic advisors are thinking about or big big mega gifts to tech to the tech world and of course in my what they always say to me and I know a bunch of these folks is. You know, I've got an algorithm for that. It's terrifying and it's wrong, (laughs) but I have an algorithm for that, right? Look at what Mark Zuckerberg did to the Newark Public Schools and you can see how well that turns out. Right, exactly. But anyway, so strategic philanthropy is is this idea that somehow you're going to find an algorithm or some form of mathematical calculation, which is going to ensure the outcome you want. And it is so much more complicated than that. Um, It also invites a lot of donor interference, and at least if you're looking at really small um, community-based organizations, in attempting to comply with all the donors' demands and and sort of showing an immediate, you know, show us your metrics, um, a lot of time is wasted in many cases, and the work doesn't get done. So there's been a movement back the other way, right? I mean, it's, it's, this is, the pendulum does swing towards something called trust-based philanthropy. And, In the wake of Mackenzie Scott's phenomenal, um, massive gifts to a number of organizations, including a number of organizations in Chicago and others that support women, but also in the performing arts, there's been talk about trust-based philanthropy. And what worries me about that is that somehow it's going to convince women that they don't have a right to ask questions anymore. And nothing could be further from the truth. You and I both know that Mackenzie Scott's probably got an extraordinary team of people who have, you know, done a thorough, almost like pathological, logical, you know, scope.
0: I'm going to, I'm going to hop in just so people know it's uh, Amazon CEO, Jeff Bezos, now ex-wife, just so people know who Mackenzie Scott is.
1: Who has has revolutionized philanthropy and along with Linda Gates, bless their souls is actually focusing on women and girls, but also on on, on, previously ignored institutions like performing arts, uh, um, organizations of color, um, as well as HBCUs. Um, But the idea that somehow that um, trust-based philanthropy means you just hand somebody a check because you're told to do that terrifies me because it then reinforces the idea that women shouldn't be in control of their their money.
0: Oh, because um, you're saying it's in a trust, so therefore it's kind of like behind closed doors. Right. Yeah. But what, but what not true. Folks, right? Folks
1: probably don't know is that, you know, I'm sure Mackenzie has batteries of forensic accountants right. and advisors, et cetera, who've done a deep dive into all these organizations. Trust based philanthropy doesn't mean you ask you don't ask questions at the beginning. What it means is that you don't control, try and control every single thing about how the program is administered or day-to-day operations, because the holy grail is obviously operating funds. And the idea is that you give, you turn, you once you have done your due diligence, you um, you trust the organization to do the right thing. You're not asking for three months, six months, 12 months updates, because all that compliance is incredibly time, um, time expensive. Expensive. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's a huge time suck and it takes away from doing the mission. I think like, I think that, you know, like to, to wrap this all up in like a big, big bow here, what you've done is amazing. You're, and I encourage people and Liza, I'm going to ask you to give the, um, the website, for the Dance Data Project, if you could, sure. quickly.
1: So two things. First of all, um, my hashtag is Ask Before You Give, and I actually give sample templates for giving, and then I give our own because we actually focus on how charities treat their staff, which so many quote strategic philanthropists don't. Um, and then it's DanceDataProject.com.
0: So, so that one check out. But two, if you take away nothing here, it's that take ownership of of the things that mean the most to you and you even touched on it even if that means within your own portfolio that you don't believe the companies that you're invested in are doing the right thing speak up I mean social impact investing is is amazing to me and it is on the forefront these days and you should get involved and women in particular have to start opening their mouths and I love that you're suggesting, Liza, that women one start an, start an organization if you have a passion about something, and if not, take ownership of where you're putting your money and and make sure your money is working for you. Because on one final note, I will say to you, I think there is this notion out there that well, just because I donate to this charity doesn't mean it's going to go to these poor girls that are being trafficked in the middle of the Sudan, right? I don't. How do I know that? So. I think there's a skepticism out there to give sometimes. Right, um, but
1: that there's a lot of organizations that rate charities. There's a lot of information out there. Um, you can ask for accountability. The other thing I would encourage, by the way, Tracy, you mentioned you have daughters, is bring your daughters. They don't have to be 18. Bring your daughters along to the meetings with your financial advisor bring them along to meetings with, um, if you, if you're giving enough money that you can get a meeting with a development officer, bring them along with you. And, um, as I have with my kids, show them, show them that how, how I go,
0: you know, how you go about giving and, and let them, let them ask questions as well. Yeah, it's brilliant. Actually, we do some, we do big family meetings. And when you start to, when you talk to the kids, what they're passionate about is often so different from what mom, dad, grandma, grandpa are passionate about. And when the family comes together on their philanthropic endeavors, it's just, it's so nice and it's so helpful. And it's also part of the financial plan. To Liza, to your point, it has to be something. It's not just about giving money to the kids, right? If it's there's something I'm passionate about, could be pimples, it could be anything. I, I want to make sure there is money set aside while I'm alive, after I'm gone, it is something that you have to bring to the forefront in your conversations with your advisors. Yeah, I mean, I
1: I, I used to give my kids uh, before they were you know, up and running and on their own philanthropic budgets and
0: they would decide how they invested it. I love it, I love it. Liza, this is so important and I'm so grateful you took the time to talk to us. Please everyone check out the website, check out all the stuff she's been doing and stand up for yourself and your beliefs. Um, Liza, again, thank you so, so much. It's been such a delight. Thanks to you so
1: much, Tracy. I really appreciate it.
0: This presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc., nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. In providing wealth management services to clients, we offer both investment advisory and brokerage services, which are separate and distinct and differ in material ways. For information, including the different laws and contracts that govern, visit UBS.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.